give him instruction on pastoring there and how to set up the church and organize the church and train leaders. And this section deals with the Bible and the importance of the scriptures. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, I'll end reading there. It's been almost 493 years uh, since uh, a man who was a Roman Catholic priest and a college professor went and nailed to the uh, a public bulletin board of sorts, which was the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. He nailed there 95 Latin theses or statements on uh, the sale of indulgences by the Catholic church, and he invited public discussion on the same. And so we look back at that event as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, <clears throat> something that actually has turned the world upside down. Now, those 95 statements that Martin Luther nailed to that door were titled The Disputation to Explain the Virtue of Indulgences. Now, if you have any knowledge of Scripture, and if you were to read those 95 statements today, you would probably find them to be pretty strange. Uh, there was no protest there against the Roman Catholic Church. There was no protest against the Pope. There was not even protest against any of the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. It was just a protest against the sale of these things called indulgences. And if you remember, those were... Essentially, they were tickets to sin that you could pay for that were going to help build St. Peter's Cathedral back in Rome. Now, the term Reformation means to form again, and the term Protestant means to protest, which means to declare publicly. So Protestant Reformation means to declare publicly a return, a reform to the Bible. The idea today when we refer to that is not that the Reformation was completed or fully accomplished because the church always needs to be returning to the Bible. We have to constantly get our bearings from Scripture. And so we need Reformation today. Now there were four key phrases, Latin phrases, that became the slogans of the Reformation. Uh, sola Christus, that means Christ alone. Sola gratia, which means grace alone. Sola fide, which means faith alone, and sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. <clears throat> now, why was this last slogan, sola scriptura, so important to the reformers? Well, for Martin Luther and others, they were fighting against the belief that the church had equal or greater authority than the Bible. That's what it boiled down to. 
They were fighting against the belief that the church, in that case the Roman Catholic Church, had greater authority or at least equal authority to the Bible. Now today, uh, at least in the Protestant world, we have major obstacles too, but that typically is not one of them. Our obstacles are liberal interpretations of the Bible, apathy, personal laziness, unbelief, and a perceived irrelevance. And we also suffer from people who claim to have personal revelation that supersedes the scriptures. So things have changed a lot. A number of years ago, when the New English Bible was printed, when it was published, the Library of Congress received a copy. And they wrote back, and on it, this is a true story of a real letter, they wrote back to the publisher and said, who do we list as the author? And that's still a key question. Who do we list as the author of this book? Now, there are two choices. They're really boiled down. I mean, they could get, they can sound like they're more, but they're really two. Either the Bible came from the mind of man or it came from God. That, those are really the only two choices, that this came from the mind of man or it came from God. Now, let me, let me give you a little history lesson, at least of the past 150 years, about those that think it came from the mind of man. And I want to re tell you a little bit about what's called liberalism. And I'm not talking about political liberalism. We're not talking about, uh, I'm talking about in a theological sense when we talk about the Bible. Uh, I'm not talking about conservatives and liberals on talk radio. And that, that's, I'm not even using a term like that. Liberalism was a school of thought that grew up in the latter 1800s. And in the world, that was a time of great optimism. There was a great belief that the future would just continue to show unlimited human progress. And theological liberalism originated in Germany. Now, there's a great irony. Before I go any further, what's ironic about what I'm getting ready to tell you? Where was Martin Luther from? The Reformation started in Germany in the 1500s, and now some of the, as I'm going to show you, some of the greatest poison against Christianity also came out of Germany but about 300 years later. And here's what it said. Liberalism uh, in this school of thought said the Bible is simply a collection of human writings. Uh, some of it, they would say, was good literature, but when they used the word inspired, they said the Bible's inspired like Shakespeare was inspired or like Rembrandt was inspired or like Handel was inspired. And the teachings of liberalism could be summed up in this phrase. The phrase is, it taught that the God was the father of all and men were all brothers. Or you could put it this way, the sum of the teaching was the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. And it taught that human reason, your ability to reason, unaided by anything else like a Holy Spirit, that that was sufficient to understand the Bible. And so liberalism you might say, was a frontal attack on the Bible. It looked at the Bible and it called into question the authorship, the historicity, in other words, did these things really happen? Uh, and it was anti-supernatural. So it had an anti-supernatural assumption, therefore no miracles could be true. Um, men swallowed by a fish, 
walking on water, resurrection from the dead, any, any miraculous, they just threw out immediately. Now, that was liberalism, and all that was before 1914. That whole school of thought shattered around 1914. Do you remember why? World War I. So many of the, those who were theologically liberal and liberal about all of, of human education went through a terrible time. You read the writings of H.G. Wells, like The Time Machine and others, the science fiction he wrote. That, that's, he, was, he became totally disillusioned with uh, humanity and our ability to make war and, and so forth. Part of that was that change that was taking place. Now, in response to liberalism arose another school of thought that is very, very influential in our country today. And it's called neo-orthodoxy. Neo means new. Orthodox means accepted teaching. So it gave itself the name, the new accepted teaching. It's kind of grandiose, isn't it? Neo-orthodoxy. Now, it looked at liberalism. It looked at this frontal attack on the Bible. And it understood that human progress is not unlimited, that human reason is not sufficient. And they also said this is more than just ethical teaching. And so they said, what we must do as people is experience God. But this experience, are y'all still with me? It was on a different plane than the way we normally think. In other words, as you go into, as you approach life, you, you think on a rational, historical, logical, objective, scientific plane. But then they said, what's necessary for religious truth is to have a leap of, speak to me, leap of faith to this upper level that's not scientific, that's not rational, that's not objective. And so they said there are two kinds of truth. There's historical truth, there's scientific truth, and then there's religious truth. And that's very subjective. And so here they say, and it's still today, say the Bible can be historically false, but religiously true. Now, the way that gets interpreted is like this. Did Jesus rise from the grave? It doesn't matter. All that matters is whether you believe he raised from the grave. See, that's neo-orthodoxy. Uh, what matters is, have you experienced his resurrection in your heart? The danger, there are many dangers, but one of the dangers with neo-orthodoxy, they will use Christian terminology and mean something totally different, just like that. Oh, I believe in a resurrection. Now, I hear that and think of stone moved away, body came out, resurrected body. That's what I mean by using that term. A neo-orthodox person can use that term but mean what I said a moment ago. Is the body out of the tomb? No, the body's still there. What matters is I believe in the resurrection. I feel in my heart. Uh, they felt it was a middle ground between what you could say had been the conservative position and the liberal position. But people like me would say, no, it's no different than the liberal position because it adopted the liberal's view of the Bible. They said the Bible is not the word of God, but it contains the word of God. Well, you'll say, well, which parts then are the word of God? Well, the part that you sense is the word of God in your experience that you believe. So if you say, did Adam and Eve really live? Doesn't matter. What, what do they mean to you? Was Jonah swallowed by a fish? Doesn't matter. What do you learn from the story? 
Was Jesus a real man? Doesn't matter. What does it mean to you? What does God show you through that? I can read editorials in the newspaper in the religious section, and not because I'm so bright, but I've studied enough of this, in a heartbeat I could tell you where the person's new orthodox. They're little catchphrases, like I believe that I, I take the Bible too seriously to take it historically. It sounds, that sounds pretty neat, doesn't it? That's, it's not neat. Imagine if my fifth grade teacher had come up to me and said, now you sit in that desk. And if I had stood up and walked around the room and she said, you sit down. I said, oh, teacher, I take you too seriously to take you, literally. <laughs> it wouldn't sound too neat then, would it? Policeman pulls you over for speeding. said, look, you've got to pay this ticket. You know, oh, oh, look, I take you too seriously to take you literally. You don't really mean that, do you? Um, now, this view of New Orthodoxy confronts us with a serious problem. And that is, how can we know which parts of the Bible are trustworthy and what parts are not? How do we know which aspects have to do entirely with salvation and which are only matters of history? Because often, when, since they say the history doesn't matter, all that matters is your experience religiously, but often the history and the teaching are intertwined. That's why the Gospels give us names, places, times, when so-and-so was emperor, this took place, Four years before that, this happened. That's why the Apostle Paul said, if Christ be not resurrected from the grave, then our preaching is foolishness and our loved ones are still in the grave. Also, if the Bible's references to the physical world and the history are not trustworthy, then on what basis can we be sure that those portions dealing with salvation are trustworthy? So if someone says, well, I don't, I don't believe in... I don't believe that God would punish anyone for eternity. I don't believe that there's a place called hell. Well, what do you believe in? Well, I believe that God's loving. Why? Because the Bible says he's loving. Well, wait a minute. You just, you just said we can't believe anything in the Bible. How do you know God's loving? Does that make sense? I mean, if we're going to throw out some of it, how can you hold on to any of it? Um, also, then, can other things become the word of God? Can Shakespeare? Can poetry? But So whether it's the liberal approach that was a frontal attack on the scripture or whether it's the neo-orthodox approach that's so prevalent today, they are variations but all basically agree that the mind of man is the primary source of the Bible. So the Bible is man's words about God rather than God's word to man. Now, I want to read this passage. I read this passage because I think the Bible tells us something different about itself. It tells us that the scriptures alone are inspired by God. Verses 16 and 17, I'll read it again. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So here's Paul and Timothy. Paul is in prison when he writes this. Timothy is a pastor, and when he says all scripture is God-breathed, that's the word from where we, we get inspiration. It is inspired that all scripture owes its origins and its contents to the divine breath of the Spirit of God. That's what we mean by inspiration. That yes, there were human authors, there were at least 40 authors that, that wrote over a period of some 1,500 plus years, and the Holy Spirit did not suppress their personalities. We have different language, uh, gra grammatical construction, different backgrounds from kings to poets to shepherds to a tent maker, uh, to Peter, who was a fisherman, 
uh, to, to Matthew, who is a tax collector, to Luke, who is a physician, and we see their personalities come through in the way that they wrote. Uh, but the Spirit did not suppress those personalities, but it was still God-breathed. It was from the Holy Spirit. And Paul saying, Timothy, you need to make good use of it. And he says it's useful for these four purposes. First, for teaching. It imparts knowledge about God. It teaches us about God and about Christ and about life and about eternity. And then he says it's profitable for reproof, for warnings, for dangers that are pointed out, the do-nots, don't covet, don't steal, don't bear false witness and so forth, do not love the world. Now, if we, only, if we stopped at that point with the scriptures, it would just seem to be legalistic and negative. But then he goes on and said it's also beneficial for correction. So it reproves us, in a sense, it knocks us down, don't do that. But then it also sets us on the right path. Some of you were teachers. Uh, all of us had teachers. Some teachers were better than others for various reasons. I think a good teacher, one thing that made the person, a man or woman, a good teacher, is they not only pointed out our mistakes, but then they knew how to tell us, now let me show you how to correct that. That's what the scriptures do. They teach us, then they reprove us, then they correct us, um, and then they train in righteousness. The teacher must train his people. Every Christian needs to be disciplined and discipled. And that's the character of training in righteousness. Uh, I was just meeting with the youth ministry staff here earlier, and we were talking about how to influence students to have a devotional life. And we, looked at, we were looking at these two books. This, many of you have seen this, Streams in the Desert, written back in the early 1900s by Mrs. L.B. Kalman, uh, a missionary wife who, she and her husband were career missionaries in China and Japan, and then he got sick. They came back to the United States, and she basically cared for him for six years before he died. During that time, she wrote down uh, daily devotionals of things that she had read and thoughts that she had. And this was edited by Jim Ryman up in Atlanta a few years ago. And uh, we talk, talked about using something like this. Here's another book of daily readings by John Piper called A Godward Life. It's the first of two volumes. And, you know, each, each little reading is, is maybe two, two and a half pages long. And, but we were talking about how do you teach someone to have a devotional life. And that's part of what this says. The scriptures are good for training in righteousness. They equip us for service at the end of the passage, verse 17, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. It's the picture of a soldier, a soldier being equipped of having the instruments and the weapons that that, that soldier would need. Let me tell you a few other uses of the Bible, uh, and I'll just read these verses. One is the scriptures alone lead us to Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 23, it says, We've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. And so I, I love to hear testimonies. One of my privileges as a pastor is to hear many testimonies as people come to join our church, to become members. Uh, is, uh, we do an interview, and we ask the person, tell us about your relationship with Christ. I've never heard two that were the same. Some... Can't, grew up in Christian families and can't remember a, a real clear time when they did not know Christ. Some were converted as adults after horrible circumstances, maybe a divorce, maybe a crisis. Some as college students. 
But one thing that remains the same, there's always scripture involved. There's always the, the Bible was instrumental in that person's conversion. Luther had experienced this through the scriptures. He had come to know Christ as his Savior as he studied the book of Romans. And when he understood the phrase from the Old Testament quoted in the Romans, which is the just shall live by faith, uh, the quotation from the book of Habakkuk. I came to faith in Christ, and some of the key verses was John 1.12. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Uh, Revelation 3.20, Romans 6.23. I had a man call me just a few minutes ago. Uh, he's been a, uh, an acquaintance of mine for about six years. I've talked to him about Christ. I've talked to him about the church. He really wants nothing to do with it of any church. He's just very cynical. Um, he and his wife are both professionals, and he just seems very self-sufficient. And uh, uh, he called me, and he was rather upset on the phone. And he's on his way to see his dying father uh, in another state. And, uh, and when we got to the end, I said, do you mind if I pray with you on the phone? He said, I, I'd, I'd love it. And I prayed. And, I mean, and I, I tried to pray with scripture and that God might empower him to be an encouragement to his dying dad and his, his soon-to-be uh, widowed mother. Um, and hopefully God will change his heart. Um, and if, he, if I get the opportunity, and which I'll, I should see him in the next several days, uh, I'm going to suggest that he read some scripture. And I would recommend today that someone read the, the Gospel of Mark. It's short. It's succinct. It's to the point. Um, in our visual generation today or our society, that seems to be a good place to start. It goes on, and I better go on. I've only got about three minutes left. The scriptures alone nourish our souls. They are the true soul food. Psalm 119 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey. First Peter said, Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, talking of the word. And you and I need regular meals. We need regular meals. Hopefully this isn't the only meal you have this week. You need a regular intake, just like you need a regular intake of Scripture. You need a balanced diet. Um, you need to read the various parts of Scripture. Some's history, some's biography, some's poetry, some's philosophy, some's prophecy, some's theology. We all have our favorites, but we really need a balanced approach to our spiritual diet. I would just urge you to work out some system of your own you can follow that you have a daily reading of Scripture. And the best way is not to start at the beginning and go to the end. I tried to explain that a few weeks ago. There are better reading approaches, but if that works for you, just whatever works, I'd urge you to do it. In September of 1985, there was a party held at one of the largest cities, uh, largest swimming pools in New Orleans. And the reason was to celebrate the summer of 1985 as the first summer in years that no drowning had taken place at any of the many city swimming pools around New Orleans. The summer was now officially over. 200 guests were at the celebration. 100 of those were certified lifesavers, lifeguards. It was a great party. It wasn't until the party was over that they noticed the fully clothed body of a man on the bottom of the pool near the drain. 
They attempted to revive him, but it was too late. The man had drowned surrounded by lifeguards. And sometimes in the church, I think people are starving. Um, and we celebrate how much we believe the truth of the Bible, and yet many of us never even pick it up and read it. Let me close with this about William Tyndale. How many of y'all ever heard of William Tyndale? You ever heard that name? Well, I, I want you to remember it, and I'm, I'm going to read from my notes so I won't uh, elaborate and waste time. Um, usually, if, if you think of the Reformation, if you know anything, you know Martin Luther's name. But William Tyndale uh, lived before Luther. Uh, Luther was in Germany. Uh, William Tyndale lived in England. And he was a scholar. He studied at Oxford. He was at Cambridge. He was fluent in seven languages. He was proficient in Hebrew and Greek. He was a Roman Catholic priest. But he had a driving compulsion. And his compulsion was to teach English-speaking men and women the good news of justification by faith. And his desire was to put a copy of the New Testament into the hands of all people. If you remember, at that time, you were not to translate the Bible out of Latin. Uh, the church wanted to control the interpretation of Scripture. And so translating it into the language of the people was uh, punishable by death. In 1523, uh, six years after Luther had posted his 95 theses, William Tyndale asked the Bishop of London for permission and for the money, the funds, to translate the New Testament into English. He was told flatly, no, not going to do that. He left England, he went to Germany, and he began his translation. He took the Greek and he began to put it into English, and then he smuggled it back into England. Copies were bought up by the church, they were burned, plans were made to imprison Tyndale. He continued his work revising the New Testament and he started translating the Old Testament. He continued this for several years, then he was caught and imprisoned. He was condemned to die as a heretic, and he was delivered over to the authorities for execution. On October the 6th, 1536, he was executed by strangulation, and then his body was burned. Moments before he died, he cried out, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Now, William Tyndale died so that you and I as English-speaking people could have the Bible in our own language. Two years after his death, King Henry VIII required every local church, every parish church, to have one copy of the whole Bible in English, two years after Tyndale's death. Those attracted great attention, and even those, you'll see these pictures, had to be chained to keep them from being stolen. If you see those pictures with the Bible with a chain on it, so nobody would steal it. So have you been born through the word of God? Have you believed the gospel about Christ as it's described for us in the scriptures? You can stake your life, you can stake your eternity on it. Well, let me lead us in a closing prayer. Father, thank you for the great privilege of having the Bible in our own language. We realize today we're told by linguists that still some 1,500 languages yet to have the Bible or anything else translated into their languages. We pray that we would be stewards of this, that you'd help us to be more disciplined, to read and learn, to nourish ourselves from your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.